Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, everyone. This is Hugh Ballou. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Every week, we interview somebody about a specific topic or project or skill set, and we, we learn from people who've done some really good things over the Not that they've done everything correct out of, the, out of the shoot, but they've learned a lot of things, and they want to share some things with you. So we that are working in the social benefit space as nonprofit leaders or clergy, um, lead, people leading associations, people that are educators, we've got really difficult work to do. So this series of interviews is to help you get some perspective from some others in the same space, to learn some things, to learn from stories, and then to meet some new people that are uh, doing cause-based work. And my, my guest today is a new friend, but a dear friend in a short period of time. And we actually live in the same time zone, which is kind of rare for this show. Um, <laughs> Joel Bryant, Dr. Bryant, how about telling people a little bit about who you are, a little bit about your background, so we know who's talking to us, and then what's your passion? What do you, what do you, why are you doing this? What's your passion for this work? Well, I've had about 30 years being in the nonprofit space, particularly in, in church and ministry. I'm serving a very dynamic leader in a very dynamic ministry, and I really learned a lot. And out of that, I evolved a passion for leadership, leadership development you know, leadership skills, leadership competence, because the society is only as strong as its leadership, not its weakest link, its leadership. And so that is my passion is to help leaders reconceive what it means to lead people, to lead an organization, particularly in the new millennium. That's so important. So that's a short story. New millennium. So you've done a number of different things in your career. So give us a snapshot of some of those, the kind of work that you've done previously. I've had about 25 years in sales, management, leadership, you know, big companies, small companies, managing customer service, customer acquisition, customer retention, um, as a trainer, developing people's competence, their capacity, you know, their ability to, you know, excel and self-actualize. Then I got tired of that and I went to school late in life at, I think at 35 or 40, started getting education and I ended up getting my doctorate several years ago. And I taught at UNC Charlotte, taught philosophy, um, for five years, and I quit that, and we got a doctorate in educational leadership. So I'm an educator, author, trainer, uh, ever-evolving person. I don't really have a label, but I'm just evolving. And you're also a pastor. I used to um, be involved in that ministry. Um, I think that is the most challenging ministry today. You know, when I say ministry, I mean service. Yeah. I don't mean religious, I mean human service, because the dynamics have changed. You know, we have 72 million millennials on the planet. We have 3 million people every year that are being unchurched or unaffiliated. We have church attendance down about 20 to 40% nationwide. And then on top of that, we have an influx of other faiths and what supposed to be as a Christian nation. So there's unique challenges in terms of how do we actualize and how do we activate and how do we integrate other people into this so-called melting pot? Yeah, it's sort of a tossed salad more than a melting pot. Um, so we, you know, we each, 
it's lettuce still says the lettuce. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There are certain constants. We do have um, listeners on here of Muslim faith and Jewish faith. And, you know, the work of any, any, any religious organization is most challenging. Um, I don't care which, which of those that you belong to. They're very, they're very challenging. And it's pretty much the same when I've worked with synagogues. They got the same problems as churches do. It's just um, different, you know, just a different take on it. But it is the most challenging work. And so if you can, my thing is, if you can lead in the church, you can lead anywhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interdisciplinary um, uh, environment. And I and you, you just reminded me, I forgot, I was an editor of a Christian newspaper. I didn't forgot about that. And so I interviewed people from every kind of faith. You know, it was, a, you know, even though it was a Christian base, but we went to all kinds of people. And I got to meet all kinds of faiths and perspectives and belief systems and worldviews and opinions and attitudes and all those things. When you add those things together, they create a sentiment. And so a lot of times people don't understand your sentiment is more important than really what you believe because your sentiment is your stance, your emotional orientation to what you believe. It's your posture in the world. Yo, yo. I mean, there's far too people that understand the power of love and far too people that understand the power of, of listening and collaboration. Those are all, to me, those are all parts of leadership. It's difficult when it's difficult for a lot of clergy to collaborate. And, and I've seen that because at a certain level, the doctrine and the theology militates against becoming so uh, aligned that you feel like you're compromising your particular perspective on your belief system. And so the collaboration tends to be not as fruitful as it could be if we were not so um, indoctrinaire, particularly in areas that are not even, that's not even that important. You hit the nail on the head. We major in minor things and we have a private club and we exclude everybody else. You'll be pleased to know, I noticed some of the people listening today uh, represent a similar perspective that you do, that our, our faith is not a barrier to other people's, it's a connector. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a big world. And like you've just alluded to, it's a, it's a rapidly changing world. As a matter of fact, I saw a Seth Godin post today where he talks about if we want to remain constant, we're, we're, everything else is changing. We have to change just to stay constant. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so your title is an intriguing title for, for today's interview. And I want to make sure it's the danger of ecosystems. So pray tell, what does that mean? What is an ecosystem? Well, we have ecosystems. These are integrated, um, connected, overlapping, interweaving structures that allow us to have a healthy planet that makes us makes it possible for us to be on this planet and be able to exist and thrive and flourish. An ecosystem, in contrast, is a static, stayed, fixed set of concepts, constructs, and beliefs that we just repeat, we reinforce. It's almost like the soldier who's taken captive, you know, in war, and it's like, no matter what you say, he gives you his name, his rank, and his serial number. All new information can come in. So when you have an ecosystem, that's an organization that has become a closed system and does not take in new information, 
So it does not change, it does not challenge itself, it does not disrupt itself. It just repeats and it just parrots their principles. And in the 21st century, that is unsustainable and it is untenable. We have a different gener we have a different mindset that's hit the planet. So ecosystems, they're very, they're, they, 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 they look alike, the demographics, the psychographics, how they think, you know, they call it hom homophily and social psychology. We want to be around people like us. And that's good in our personal spaces. But when you come into the social space and you create an organization, then homophily cannot be the basis of your organization. Unless it's like-minded in terms of being progressive, expansive, and curious. So I'm going to have to go look up a whole lot of words after today's interview. <laughs> Yeah. My, learned, my learned guest, uh, Dr. Joel Bryant, is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, uh, are you a, a Southerner by birth? Yep, born, actually I was born in Douglas, Georgia, Coffee County, a little small, small place. And then we moved to Lumberton, an even smaller place in Eastern North Carolina. So I'm so grateful that my parents had a vision and got me out of Lumberton, North Carolina and out of Douglas, Georgia. <laughs> I grew up in Atlanta. Oh wow! Okay, very it was, experience. It was yeah, and I went downtown Peachtree Street in front of Walgreens, and you know, Walt, uh, uh, Martin Luther King was there doing the sit-ins in the sixties, uh, and mm -hmm. massive impact on my understanding of many things, especially mm -hmm. what what strong leadership is. And and then he came and talked to my student body, and I. I was right there taking notes, really profound. So I was glad to have been part of that and as part of my history of learning. So this this thing that we this word that we throw around in our society, leadership, um, it's really um, sometimes people use it as a weapon. And even the word boss is kind of like um, a weapon. I'm going to tell you what to do and you better do it. Mm -hmm. and unfortunately, that's a model used by a lot of clergy. You know, well, I think it's, but it's supported by scripture, by their reading of the scripture. You know, I mean, you have the start with the head of every woman. I mean, we're going, this is what does these scriptures say, right? And so then we have the, we have the, uh, what, what they call divine order, depending upon what kind of church you move in, circle you move in, but there's a divine order, right? And that's the pastor, you know, or maybe the bishop, then the pastor, depending upon the title, you know, there are many different titles. So there is a hierarchy. And organizations that thrive today, they are, they, they are flat, they're decentralized. There is a leader, there is a person that has the ultimate responsibility, but that leader's job, a, a, a good leader, is able to self-actualize the abilities of those around him or her. And they create an atmosphere where they elicit other people's greatness or their latent abilities, and they are securing themselves and they never have to say, I'm the leader. I always tell men, if you got to say you're the head of the home and you have to use the Bible to say that, you have a problem. <laughs> you never, I never said in 20 years of marriage before my wife passed, I never said I was the head of the home. Yeah. I didn't have to say that. So th there's an interesting dynamic here. Um, you know, as, as Christians, we look at the example that Jesus gave us. And he, he never said, worship me, he said, follow me. And it was a very clear statement. And we're not that clear. We're not that clear. And, and I see a lot of um, clergy, especially in, in, in our, our faith journey, that want to, um, I'm not sure what the word would be, but they want to default their authority to a 
committee to come up with the vision for the church or the mission of the church. You know, there's a lot of dysfunction there. The first off, they want to say the Great Commission is their mission. No, that's the Great Commission. It's not a choice. What are you going to do when you make disciples? That's your mission. Mm-hmm. But they also want to say, okay, vision for this church. So I, I and I like to say to them, where in the Bible did God give a vision to a committee? <laughs> I think that's what you're to strengthen what you're saying. There is a visionary who leads an initiative. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't mean that you're bossy. That means you so so in that context, leadership is an energy field and it's a field of influence, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but it also has to be an expression of your essence. You mentioned Dr. King. Yeah. Dr. King was, was what I call an existential leader. He was impacted by his leadership. We have a lot of people who are not impacted by their decisions. And when I say impacted, I mean at a very visceral level. If I'm in a large organization, let's say a corporation, and I have to lay people off, I'm not really going to be impacted. So I can make a decision that's not really existential. I can't even relate to that person because I've been so far removed for years. So I think real leaders always have a sense of uh, a sense of transcendence, the ability to go beyond themselves, to go into another person's sphere and, and call forth who they are and not demand, not dictate, no dogmatism, no imperialism, no using the Bible to make you get in line, obey those that have, you know, Hebrews 13, all these scriptures these people use who are insecure in their person. And they're threatened by other people who are gifted. And particularly, I see this a lot with pastors. You know, I see, I've, I've seen a lot of jealousy and envy and, you know, and all that comes from that because that person has a grace on his or her life that you just don't have. But it's for the body of Christ you know, in a, in a church sense, and it's for society in a so-called secular sense. And it's the culture of the organization you lead. Um, and, and we're leading, um, our, our constituency is generic. We're, we're, we're not faith-based organizations, most of us. I mean, we might be people of faith working in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And we have quite a few different kind of faiths in the country, as you pointed out. But I think, I think we do have some fundamental similarities in anchored around love, anchored around character, anchored around you know, a vision for bringing goodness to humankind. So as, as nonprofit leaders, um, what do you see in your inter- interaction with cause-based charities, community charities, or, or et cetera? What do you think, if you could say to a group of leaders in front of you, which there are, What's the number one area people should focus on to upgrade their skills for leading in these really, really different times? Openness. Openness. Leadership doesn't mean that you're finished. You're polished, but you're not finished. So who are you learning from? It's the ability to be open, take in new information, hear a new perspective, and be able able to sit with that not always having to be the one to speak up, not always be the one that provide the direction. You should never lead when it's not necessary, first of all. So when there's a forum, you set the atmosphere for other people to be transparent, vulnerable, and honest, and you'll learn a lot. It's a free focus group. Companies pay millions of dollars. I'm out, I forget, I also moderate focus groups. Be the one to speak. And they pay all this money to bring people in the room to ask them questions and the moderator just listens. 
And his only question, the only time he's to, he or she speaks is to follow up and get clarification or to get them to extrapolate or to say a little bit more about what they just said. Because they want to know, how can I reach my market or my constituents? How can I reach this demographic? And you have to have the ability to be open and listen. So you keep coming back to listening. And as a, as a conductor, you know, that's got to be one of my top uh, leadership skills that I like. Mm -hmm. So what's so important about listening and how do, you, how do we listen? I mean, we don't usually do it. I know when I'm talking to somebody and I can look in their eyes and they're, they're forming their answer while I'm talking and I know damn well they're not listening to me. They're, they're assuming how I'm going to finish. So tell us how, how we can effectively listen. Well, first of all, I have to have a real personal commitment to being a better person. Not just trying to fact find so I can make my organization better. That's why that's that's the root of impatience and interruption and pre-thought before the person finishes. Because when you're like that, there is a lapse or a gap or a lack of a commitment. And really, I want to change. And so to change, I have to listen. And I mean active listening. Not because why? First of all, I'm not auditioning, so I don't have to know all the answers. I don't know, I even have to know all the questions, but if I want to actively listen, so I'm going to put away any distraction. I'm not going to have my phone. I'm going to, my postures and my gesture are going to communicate, you have my full attention. And when I find myself drifting, I'm going to bring myself back in my mind because why? I want to hear this. So I think it's active listening, but you can't do that, Hugh, unless you have a personal commitment, not as a leader. As a human being, I want to be a better doggone person. I want to be a different person. And if I do that, that's going to affect my leadership. But if I just want to get some information to build my organization, I'm not going to call forth your greatness. Because one thing people do, when they know you're not listening, and I do this all the time, if I'm talking to a person and I see them not giving their attention, I stop talking. And from that on, they'll waste their time because I'm not going to say anything else. You're not going to get anything else from me. And I might have, I might know the answer to your question, but I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do that. Love it. I love it. I love it. So um, why did you decide you went and got two doctorate degrees? No, I had a master's in philosophy. Oh, master of philosophy. Okay. Yeah. And then I did that. Then I, I almost had two masters, but they wouldn't, they want, it was a, it's a, it's a money thing. So I just did my doctorate in ed leadership and, you know, masters and almost two masters and just taught. But I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I read and I think and I talk to more people now than I ever did when I was doing my doctoral program. Because I want to I want to I want to know. I want to be better. I want to know what other people thought who were a lot wiser and older and had more perspective than me. So. Um, how do people learn to become a better listener? Uh, you work with leaders and helping them improve, improve their, their skill set. So it, it sounds like to me, um, I like to define leadership as primarily being a person of influence. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a piece here about listening that in order to be an influencer, you got to be a good listener. So when you're working with somebody, 
how do you help them? I mean, you can't do it for somebody. So how do you help them uh, become a better listener? Ask them questions about things that they should know about, say, people in their organization. And then they can't just interact with this person on a regular basis. Do y'all talk? Yeah. And so because of you can't, because I'm going to tell you something. You know this, Hugh. Life is small things. All things are small. There are no big things. Everything is a small thing. So it's the ability to validate. So when you don't listen to a person, when I'm speaking to you and you're not listening, and I, I, I discern that, you are invalidating for that moment in my eyes, my humanity, my experiences, my desire to help you or my desire to connect with you. So I ask, so I ask how does it feel to be invalidated? When was, when was the worst time you felt like you were invalidated? Well, when I was this age and they wouldn't listen to me, nobody would listen to me, nobody paid me any attention. So how do you think that makes that person feel? See, because empathy, you can't, I, I can't put myself in shoes I've never been in. My brother's blind, I've never been blind. So I can't be but so empathetic, but I can be compassionate. I can pay attention to how he moves in his world, how he moves in his household, and I can make sure that I support what his limitations um, have calls for him. So you have to pay attention. You can't be in leadership mode. You got to see, I define leadership, I define leadership as influence through relationship. There are people who I have great influence with. And there are other people that wouldn't listen to nothing I say. Because I'm not a leader to everybody. I want to point out that sound bite. Leadership is influenced through relationship. Whoa. Wow. Wow. Um, that's, that's so key. But we tend to, you and I both know leaders that push toward the, the end result and really don't regard the individual. And so I, that just, um, when you were saying that, you see me doing my happy dance. <laughs> I, I, um, I grew up in a Southern Presbyterian church and you might, um, Jim Forbes, the, the famous, uh, black preacher of um, Riverside Church in New York City. He came to Florida and did a sermon in, in my white church. And he said about Presbyterians, we were God's chosen frozen. You know, we don't make any, we don't mm -hmm. make any no emotion there. So when you see me doing a happy dance, I've sort of gotten out of that, that historical norm that I grew up with. So behind you on that lovely, lovely background you got, there's a book and it's, we've got it on the, the interview page. By the way, you can find this at the, T-H-E, the nonprofitexchange.org. And then you'll see this current, current, uh, or if, you, if it's not uh, May, 2021, you listen to this in another year, go to the bottom of that page and you'll see the archives and you'll find um, this episode um, about ecosystems. And I wanna dig into that a little bit, but first I know people are wondering about your book and there's a hot link on the page that I created that goes to Amazon. So okay. tell us what was the, to, writing a book, I've got 10 in print and 10 eBooks. It's quite an experience writing a book. So what was your motivation to wanna put that effort and time into creating the book and why should people read it? Because it's where the age is headed. Einstein said it this way and people quote these little simple quotes all the time. You can't solve a problem the same level of consciousness that it was created. But yet people are not changing their consciousness. They're acquiring data and information and facts, 
but changing your consciousness means I have an experience that changes my set point. It changes how I see the world. And those experiences are not as rare as the word defining moment makes it, that phrase defining moment. Every moment is a defining moment. If I'm present and if I'm prudent and dare I say, if I'm a little bit prescient, I have some forethought, then this is a defining moment. But it needs my participation and my presence. So the new being is about the radical shift in human consciousness that's going to affect all of our systems. The, that's volume one. I talk about first chapter, I sketched a new being, what it looks like, its qualities, its competencies, its tendencies. Second chapter, I look at race and racism in America and how the new being is going to affect you know, our racial discussion. Then I look at religion and the new being. And then lastly, politics. But the whole premise of the book is this. Human nature is corrigible. It can be corrected. The whole, the whole, the, the so-called gospel of Jesus Christ is based on the new being. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. So now it's not, that book is not a religious book. But the basis is this, we, human nature is corrigible. If it's not corrigible, then what did Jesus come for? Why are we talking about the new birth experience? And most folks only have one experience of being born again. They point to that day, I gave my life to Christ back in 1979. I've been walking with God. Every, no, you've been walking with a concept and a conceit and a construct. <laughs> God, I'm going from glory. I'm going to use that language. I'm going from glory to glory. From, I'm changing. I'm becoming a new being. So that's the premise of the book is that a radical shift in human consciousness is already hit this planet. And it's going to cause all of our systems to have to change. I said this way very simply, particularly with religion, because I feel like a lot of the narrative of religion has did a detriment to human evolution because of constantly preaching sin and the old man, and Jesus says this way, and this is what I talk about every system, every creed, every construct. Jesus says that the Sabbath, every system, every rite, every ritual, every liturgy, every sacrament, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So as a leader, if I'm just looking at the end goal, no, that's, that's, that, is a, that, is a, that is a perversion of priorities. So a little bit long answer, but that's what the book is about, and that's what it, that's what I'm about. There's another bound sound bite: perversion of priorities. You think that happens much? Uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I want to do the sponsor thing, and I want to come back to. Uh, uh, we have a couple of folks that are listening. I think would have some great questions or comments. So uh, with your approval, I'll let them ask those a little bit later. But um, uh, Center Vision is in the the transformation business. You know, we have programs, we have offerings, we have gatherings, but our product is transformation. And who's that Jewish guy that said, be transformed by the renewal of your mind? Renewing is in the NIV, which I like because it's it's ongoing, renewing. And I do think that's, and you're talking about, that's where it starts because we're stuck in the past. And the, I like to say the seven last words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. So... Uh, <laughs> You know, we're, and I think, I don't care what we're leading. We, we got a community organization 
it's a church of sorts. It's a group of sorts. It's a it's a it's a club of sorts. And we're we're guilty of getting education. You know, the, it's the halls of universities are, are little cloisters of people that are have insider language and insider thinking. And I think I, I think there's a danger of being an insider in well. Look over there in that place we call D.C. You know, there's insider thinking there. So mm -hmm. we don't we don't talk about politics because we might get in a fight. But that might be that might be fun though. So <laughs> so we publish magazine. We have number of copies and they're they're timeless, so we don't date them. Nonprofit performance three hundred and sixty magazines. We have different themes. This is a camera nonprofit up in Stanton, Virginia. Here's our friend Frank Chankowitz that that um, recently past and Frank was a motorcycle cop and he said I want to help kids so he started make a make a wish foundation and it's still going as a legacy so we're working hard and if you are a business person or if you want to do business in the nonprofit sector there's uh, it's the third largest industry in America 1.6 million charities that raise and spend 1.65 trillion dollars annually there's a lot of stuff going on in the nonprofit market. We could market your product or service directly as we send the magazine to a list for you. So if you want to know about this, there's more to know about the program. It's not advertising. It's putting your offer in the hands of people with a gift, a leadership gift, which they'll appreciate forever because I said it wasn't dated. It's timeless information. So if you want to know, Hugh at Hugh Ballou, that's my name, B-A-L-L-O-U, Hugh at HughBalou.com. Um, Send me a note. We'll talk about how we can connect your brand to this huge market. Um, so that's that's about Center Vision and how we help businesses connect to a market. So Joel, um, you've talked about ecosystem, ecosystem. Excuse me. Um, that's sort of like a status quo. Um, what are the biggest challenges that leaders face in overcoming that? Again, not going outside their field. You know, we have this notion of um, a learning organization, you know, and learning organizations have, you know, certain qualities. And part of it is they are very open. They don't engage in just domain specific knowledge in their particular domain. They go outside of their field and they find out what's going on in something that totally is unrelated to what I do. Because it's the ability to take information, your strategy is going to come out of your information. The quality of your strategy, the effectiveness of your strategy is a direct result of, your, of two things, your willingness to get new information and then your ability to apply it, to apply it. So you mentioned schools and institutions. I mean, yes, they are very closed and very clustered. You know, they're not, they may be teaching, but a lot of schools are not learning organizations because why? They, they, don't examine, they don't examine their mental models. A learning organization examines its mental model. What is a mental model? My assumptions and my generalizations about people. Everybody has them. So here again, I go back to focus groups. Companies spend millions of dollars a year to try to find people who can tell them the truth about their product or their service or their experience with that product or service. Because they know that when you only rely on in-house critique, that's another problem with the church. It is immune to critique. You can't critique a church. And if you, and if you are in the so-called body of Christ, but you're not in that denomination, your critique is irrelevant. Because why? We don't do it that way. And so in this new millennium, 
churches are going to have to do what employers have to do. Employees have to do sometimes when they get bought out. They make those employees reapply for their job. Tell me why I should keep you. Wow. Organizations today, you're going to have to prove your relevance. You can't just, if you're in the ministry and church, you can't just say God because the new millennial, the millennials don't care. You can't use God as a catch-all phrase to make those people give or serve. So you got to, we've got to be able to become relevant in a way to this new generation. And that means I've got to sit on and talk and listen and learn. And then be in a state where I suspend all my experiences and all my success because why? I want to disrupt myself. See, when you when the other thing, when you are when you have a learning organization approach. You disrupt yourself because why? You're taking a new information. You're like, oh wow, I didn't know that. That sounds good. That's true. And you go back to a successful organization. Say, you know, guys, we need to disrupt this process. But we wait for COVID. We wait for a crisis. We wait for a calamity. Because why? We're not trying to have a higher consciousness, and we don't know how to handle. I see COVID as positive disintegration. Hmm. 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 So wow. this is what leaders are going to have to do if they're going to be relevant in this new, and there's three things. So let me just give you these three things really quick. Yeah. This speaks to your fundraising. It speaks to everything that leaders and organizations are trying to do. Three areas, cooperation, communication, and trust. There's no fundraising problem. There's still money here. People still spending money. They never stopped. They didn't stop even when the virus first hit. So Am I communicating my vision in the way that they understand it? What kind of cooperation? Am I building consensus? Am I reaching out, not just talking to the converted? Am I reaching those people in their places, in their meetings, in their voices? And then trust. Trust, see, respect is given, but trust is earned. You can't just pitch me like when I'm on LinkedIn. I get an email wanting somebody wants me to invest in cryptocurrency or some enterprise. You don't even know me. You haven't earned my trust. Right. <laughs> so that's those things are very important. Wow. A lot of good sound bites. We'll have a transcription of this um, on the podcast platform and on the page on the website. And there's quite a few usable sound bites. We're going to have to look up the spelling for a few of these words, I'm sure. Um, so um, you have certainly a, a powerful command of, of the language that we share. Um, and even though we're Southerners, we have our own dialect. <laughs> <laughs> dialect and accent. <laughs> uh, no, everybody else has an accent. <laughs> so so um, now staying relevant, staying centered, there's a lot of, lot of pressure. Um, um, and you, you spoke about education. Do you read the, the works of Napoleon Hill? Yes, I mean, I, I love Napoleon Hill. I mean, think which is one of the first books I ever read. I mean, I yeah. listen to it because his work, his work, as you say, timeless, it's relevant today as it was when he first, when he got first commissioned by Carnegie, still relevant. Absolutely, absolutely. Carnegie introduced him to what, hundreds of, of successful people in America. Um, now we're in a very different era, but the principles, are the same, you know, a positive image. You know, this is what I've, purpose. He, he divine their purpose, he calls it. 
And then, you know, positive mental attitude, you, you're providing something good for humankind and that you surround yourself with winners, the mastermind concept. And mm-hmm. If you want to be broke, you hang around a bunch of broke people. You want to be successful, you hang around successful people. That's mm-hmm. common knowledge. Now the Napoleon Hill Foundation is in Wise, Virginia, it's in our state. And he's okay. they're releasing um, all the time new things that have never been published, but quite a quite a profound but he talks about education in the same sense you do. It's catalog of information and not a place to really think outside the box or think creatively. Now, there's people on this call who, who, who challenge that inside education, and they, they, they challenge people, the students, to think in very different ways, which is where we need to be. But as leaders, um, and the work of Murray Bowen, I don't know if you know Murray Bowen's work, uh, um, uh, Family Systems, psycho- Psychiatrist, MD, wrote a whole uh, eight concepts of leadership, but, but the, um, the differentiation of self, differentiation of self, it's not a big word, sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, who are we? What are our guiding principles? You're listing principles here. We tend to want to talk about values, which are typically single words and could be interpreted multiple ways, but you're talking about principles and applying principles to our behavior, to our thinking, to our acting which I think is so, so key in everything that you're talking about. So we want to be relevant in society and we want to honor the mission that we're going to do. Can we do that? Is there a conflict to that? Can we do that simultaneously? I think that uh, an effective organization, if it's a shared vision, is what I am. I don't just do, I am what I'm talking about. I'm, I don't just talk about self-actualization or self-transition, it's what I am. And we have a society who, for the, for the most part, Napoleon Hill's concepts are so foreign to, the, to a lot of people because why they have situ- they, they allow situations to determine their ability to change their lives. So if you're gonna have a principle-centered life, that means when you say, when, for instance, the doctors, the Hippocratic, above all, do no harm. That's not situational. That's not circumstantial. That's not relative or relevant. It's above all, do no harm. That's an immortal, eternal, immutable principle that you can apply anywhere. So a lot of people, particularly today, Hugh, because we're in the age of ideology. See, when you have ideology, you don't have really, you don't really have guiding principles. You have narrow perspectives of special interest group that's designed to promote them at the expense of other people. But when you have when you have principles, it preserves you from the it preserves you from ideologies. So we live in a very ideological age today, and ideology is always tied to emotions. It has buzzwords. You know, there's a guy back in the '70s or '80s, a guy named Eric Hoffer. He was a longshoreman, what not educated at all, based on formal education. He wrote a book called The True Believer. And today we have a lot of so-called, when I say true believers, I don't mean in the sense of faithful people. I mean that there's a people who are looking for something to belong to that affirms their fears and they align with that at the expense of principles. And there you have ideology. Because here's the thing, ideology always promises you a utopia. Wow. That's that's just so much of that right now. And it's, you're right, it's the, the opposite of, of core, uh, core values and principles you know we are anchored in uh in oh, wow in principles it's a strong culture so 
Um, you talked about an atmosphere of expansiveness. So how would a leader create this atmosphere, this culture, this attitude of expansiveness uh, organizationally and personally? Redefine the organization. It's no failing, it's only learning. You can cross boundaries. You can, you know, I've read about like certain companies, like really successful companies. If one person on the assembly line thinks that it needs to be stopped for, for some, some defect, that person has the ability to stop the entire production process. That company's commitment to product excellence. So organizations as a leader, how open is your organization? How transparent is it? Do people feel safe to bring critique? Do they feel safe to ask questions? Do they feel safe to challenge a question or a position that the leader is bringing? Well, if I'm the big I and you're the little you and it's hierarchical, you already know by my demeanor and by my disposition, that's not gonna fly here. So your best people sit on their best ideas at the time you need it. So oh, that's yeah. important. Yeah, that's relationship building. And no matter how big we are, of course, the, the higher you go on a pedestal, the further it is when you fall off. You know, I was working with a power leader one day in, in a coaching session. He said, Hugh, I'm getting ready to go into my team meeting. And there's some things that I don't do very well. How do I deal with that? And I said, why don't you tell them? And there was this silence there, which, you know, is what we do in coaching. We listen and we give silence. And it gives a clarifying moment. He says, well, I can't tell them that I have weaknesses. So another silence. And I said, and you think they don't already know? Next week, he said, you know, I told them they all stepped up and said I want to help. So, Joel, we got a few people uh, that might have some really good questions and comments. Would you like to hear from them? Absolutely. All right. So I'm opening up uh, ability for them to talk. Um, so let's see who unmutes their mic. Oops. First, um, Mr. Rash in, in Bedford, Virginia, down the road from us. Um, have you got some thoughts to share? Well, you know, Joel, thank you very much. You know, uh, there are there is a good echo chamber when you when you hear your highest ideals and your highest hopes repeated by someone of such articulate uh, with such good articulation and, and intelligence and and ability to ability to uh, to focus uh, the the responses in such a beautiful way. I just want to thank you very much. Um, you know, we've been working in the in the area where the spiritual and the the inner and the outer meet for a, a for over well 50 years but 40 years in our organization called legacy international and you articulate so beautifully um my own personal commitments and hopes and ideals i come out of a similar background in uh, with with you in terms of the 60s uh perhaps a little sim somewhat similar and what woke me up was the was the depth and the values and the commitments of Dr. King and others who I had the honor to to march with, but but also understanding what it meant to be transparent in my travels around the world. Uh, the question I would put to you, because what we have at our organization, uh, I have three basically three nonprofits, one of which is a, a quote unquote spiritually based organization, other is a secular organization. And so I have always begun with the youngest and worked as far as with the oldest of, of which now I am a part one of. And, um, and uh, so, and I chose a form of education early on it was Montessori based education, 
for a lot of the things that you articulated today, which I won't, I won't go into because uh, they're parallel. But talk to me about, uh, we do work all over the world, by the way, with uh, youth ranging, with youth ranging up to the age of 40s and then beyond that with other individuals and organizations. A lot of work we do for the Department of State, et cetera. You can look it up. But <clears throat> the reason I'm telling you that is because I want to explain that I believe in this arc of learning. Um, you know, seek out knowledge from the cradle to the grave, the Prophet Muhammad said, and that's what I believe in. Uh, but uh, talk to me about youth and, and universal principles uh, and universal values uh, and how, how you, what your thoughts are about approaching youth. We have, as I say, a school that goes from preschool all the way through high school. We work with young uh, college individuals. We work with graduates. We work with we work with uh, postgraduates. We work with young entrepreneurs all over the world. Uh, and and I see that there's this arc of values that we our organization is based on what we call universal values or and also principles. Uh, I like your differentiation. So that's my question to you. Talk to me about youth. I think this the youth with like with adults. You can only take people where they want to go. And where they want to go, you have to find what are their aspirations. Not what I want, not what I know I need, they need to go, what they need to do, they're not there yet. That's why a lot of times when older people like us are talking to young folks and we think we're giving them wisdom, they don't have shells to put it on. It's not wisdom, it's just rhetoric. So the way you lead people, a youth is so what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? I, when I was teaching college, I used to ask all of my international students, I said, in your country, do y'all have this vow of greatness? They're like, what's the vow of greatness? I said, do y'all say, when I grow up, I'm going to be? They said, oh, yeah. I said, okay. So when I'm talking to a young person or older person, I, I tap into their imagination. Because sometimes you're dealing with people based upon their deprivation and their lack and their need and their devastation and destruction and their deficit. You reinforce a sense of weakness and victimization. When I come to you with your aspiration and I tap into your imagination, now I've get, I now got you begin to be forward thinking. And so now I can show you, now to understand where you want to go, now I can begin to bring in my program, my processes, and my principles to support you in your pursuit and not be in such a hurry to get them up the arc. You see, it's always the aspiration. What is it that moves a person? And that means asking questions and shutting up and not being prescriptive. Too, too prematurely. That would, that would be the short answer of how you reach youth and adults. Say, it's the same thing. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. And it really, that really does work. And it's something you have to remind yourself all the time because you have so much experience and knowledge that you think you're going to impart it to others. But, but truly, this is really exactly, exactly the path. And, 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 uh, one has to, as, as in any path, you have to keep reminding yourself how to stay on, stay in the middle of it, you know, instead of, instead of uh, allowing yourself to drift off of it. I, I totally agree. Thank you very much for the beautiful answer. Thank you for your question. Especially driving the mountains because you're liable to tumble down the hill. So uh, yeah, preach it, preach it, brother. So we've got, um, so uh, Mr. Rash and I are connected with many ways, but a common love of excellent coffee in many forms. And so um, another thought leader here, we go to Dallas, Texas. Um, Bob Hoppins has taught me in a, in a little over a year a whole lot about, here's his book on philanthropy misunderstood. You've seen Bob. I have it also. You have it. 
yeah, I'm all in the process of, getting, of going through it and getting in it. So yeah. Okay, so you've seen Bob on C-suite, and uh, Bob is is he he's a true educator. He challenges his students to think. He's done many things in his life, but he he's inspired in leaders and young leaders. He, I don't think he's ever told me this, but I, I know that Bob doesn't only consider them the future of leadership, he considers them the current uh, leaders in society. And many times we've been together with kids and their parents and the parents have learned from their kids because Bob has inspired them. So Bob, do you have a comment or a question for our guest today? I do. Uh, I'm glad to be here, Joel. Nice to see you again. Uh, I am you again, Bob. really looking forward to uh, having a one-on-one -on -one with you because you have so much to, to think about and say. Uh, so anyway, are all of your mentors dead or do you have any alive ones that I could go to and listen to that you go to and listen to that know more than you and me and Hugh? I know it's impossible to know more than Hugh, but just in case. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's a tall order. I mean, he was a veritable archive of wisdom and information and facts. So, you know. No, all my mentors, um, here's how I look at mentorship. Mentorship to me is a posture. So if I'm in the store buying a Coke and the person in front of me is having a conversation about something with the cashier, I'm, I'm listening because I want to learn something. So it's an orientation that I take as a cause. When you look at, you know, a true mentor, as you know, Bob, I mean, a mentor is not, it's really somebody that you live with you know, mentor the old man in the, uh, in, uh, the Odyssey, moved in with, uh, I forget, the guy's son, and he taught him, Telemachus, he taught him. So I have, I have a mentor down in Greensboro, one of the most gifted pastors, you know, I'll say maybe former pastor, but one of the most gifted men I've ever met in my entire life. I met him when I was 26 years old, and he told me at 26, and I was lost and confused, he told me everything I'm doing today, he told me 26 years, when I was 26 years old, that was what, 34 years ago. So I have, so, so that's one of my living mentors. Everybody else is, if I hear a book, I was, I was in an organization the other day and I went to get, get a guy's keys for him and I saw a book on his desk by Adam Grant. And I said, how do you like that book? I, he said, I just read the first page, but I don't, it looks like it's good. I went and ordered the book because it spoke to me. So mentorship is an orientation that you take towards life. And when you do it that way, then everywhere you go, the, the world becomes a schoolroom. But I would say, realistically, most of the people I learn from are people in books. People that have, I mean, I mean like way back in history, because I look at the values that are still valid today. And what I do, I take what they've written and I make it contemporary for this reality and for my personality. So you know, that's just kind of a short answer, but my, my mentor is a guy named Wayne Clapp. I mean, he's pastored probably like 50 years and he's evolved and morphed in some areas that people don't understand, but he's very expansive. Love it. So thank you, Bob. Bob's always got really good questions. Um, AJ Goodwin is here from San Diego. AJ, do you have a comment or a question? You're Mike is still muted. Yes, sir. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Joel, Dr. Joel. What an inspiration to have you with us today. Uh, one question is, we're a, a young nonprofit with a legacy of, of music, literary, and art. Um, how, um, where is it at? 
how is a new nonprofit to raise some of its first monies or to be funded to maintain its new ecosystem? I mean, you've got to get online, perform, have, I mean, live uh, online performances, online fundraisers. I mean, there are so many, the thing is you've got to identify your community. And then you've got to just put out content because what it, what it is, you, we're competing for people's attention and their intention. People say intention is a new currency. No, it's intention. Because if, if you get my intention, attention, and then your intention does not match my values, it's just entertainment, but I'm gone. When you tell me the stories of the youth whose lives are being changed, I was on a, I was on a call a few weeks ago with Hugh, and this young lady is a part of a musical group that uh, Alice Cooper, the rock singer, started. This young lady, she told a story, a little bit of a story. She shared her talent. She offered her service, and that made people want to support that organization. Even though they have a lot of funding, but you can never have too much funding. So then, how are you? How are you reaching out? And let me say this: It doesn't matter whether you're new or old. The only thing people have on you that because you're new is they have a head start, okay? But what you have is you're fresh. You understand the new. You understand the new millennial mindset. So if I had an artistic group, I'm going to be going live performances. I'm going to be doing Facebook Lives. I'm going to be doing funny TikToks. And here's the deal. Don't always be advocating for your cause. Provide value. Sometimes I'll see, a, I, I read a story about a lady who's a Russian lady who was homeless, living in the subway in New York. She came to, from Russia. She, you know, hard times fell. So she was homeless. A cop heard her singing opera, took a video of her with his phone, put it on YouTube. It went viral. I gave money three times. I don't even know this woman. I just like, wow, but I support dreamers because I'm a dreamer. So, so don't always be advocating for your cause, provide value. And when you provide, when you provide sustained value and you keep showing up, because the other things you got to, you got to, you got to earn credibility. See, in this, in this climate, everybody's starting everything. I've experienced people just for example on LinkedIn who they offer a service. I reached out for the service. I asked for some information and the person's advertise was bigger than the ability to meet my need because they're trying to explore a climate where everybody's looking for the next thing. So provide value, be consistent and don't always advocate for your cause and you will grow organically. That's the other piece. People want to correct over time overnight things that occurred over time. Be content to grow organically. That's the short and long answer. Sorry, you. That's fine. That's fine. So um, I love hearing you uh, put things in such um, profound terms. So thank you, AJ, for being here. Um, so um, Joel, we're coming up to the last couple of minutes here. And in, in um, so the question I didn't ask yet, um, you've talked a little bit about it before that you thought COVID was, I don't know how you express it, but it was an opportunity to do things, think things differently. So some people see it as a hindrance and we're really not going back to what we used to call normal, which was anything but, and we're not even going to have a new normal. It's time to 
and we're not going to pivot. It's kind of being fresh. It's a fresh start. Any wisdom for people uh, rethinking leadership in this new era? Don't look for answers and don't seek solutions. Just have approaches. When you look for an answer, you, you sometimes don't take advantage of the immediate because you're looking for the ultimate. When you're looking for solutions, sometimes you delay actions. So begin to change even how, you, how we approach things. I'm not looking for an answer to my problems. I'm not even looking for a solution. I'm looking for an approach that I can apply right now in this moment that may have short-term benefit, but long-term value. You want short-term benefit, but long-term value. And sometimes you got to redefine your metrics. You guess you got to have money, you got to have support and all of that. But what you got to have is optimism and belief that you can play the long game. A lot of people are playing the short game. See, the short game is going to, short game will play you out of relevance. Because one thing about today, people need to know that they can trust you, that you're going to be there tomorrow. The average nonprofit um, fades after about 10 years. If they make it past a 10 year mark, they're doing well. So, so uh, approaches, not answers, not solutions, just because the approach is flexible. And answer, you've got to you've got to apply it. You know, like when you're in school, if you don't get the answer the same way the teacher showed you on the board, she's gonna force you to get that stupid formula that I got the answer. My approach was different. So what's more important? So that's, that's what I would say is redefining how you define your reality. Yes. Well. Um, I got to rest up from this interview. There's a whole lot of really, really profound things. So what thought do you want to leave people with or challenge or quote? How, what do you want to leave in people's minds today? Believe in your capacity for immensity. You can do more. You can be more. And more importantly, you can take more. See, don't allow the negative noise to become your soundtrack. Too many people have been inundated by the negativity of COVID and all the, you've got to guard this right here, this little thing on your shoulders. So make sure that you're practicing radical and that word radical means root. You're practicing radical optimism by believing in your ability to overcome whatever you're facing. Wow, that requires a big amen. Joel Bryant, um, author of The New Being, um, you've been a, a, an amazing guest today and given us certainly a lot to think about on the nonprofit exchange. So thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.